And good evening, brethren. Welcome to the last installment of our series, First and Second Thessalonians. Would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed, our loving Heavenly Father, what a blessing you have been to us, Father, to allow us to venture through this lesson. Heavenly Father, there's so much to gain and learn from it, Father, especially as we go about the business of doing what you put in place a long time ago, and that is preparation for the return of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, and that he find us ready for his return. And Father, we pray that each and every day that you allow us to awake. We awake with the mindset that we are thankful for that opportunity, and we awake with the mindset that today I am going to do something in my life that is pleasing unto you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us and blessing us. These things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen and amen. Now, this, in this particular series, we have tried uh, to present an in-depth study of the two letters that, that Paul wrote to the church there at Thessalonica. In both letters, Paul describes in detail the second coming of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, as well as the events um, surrounding it. So I would like to add information uh, Paul provided by uh, reviewing a passage from the Gospel of Matthew. And that particular passage addresses the same topic, and that is the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as well as the judgment. Jesus speaks about his return uh, and the end of the world at Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Now, due to time constraints, we do not have time to read all of these. So what I would like you to do as as we venture through this, to go ahead and turn to that section of Scripture in your Bible, and you can relate to what I am going to be talking about. So in, in Matthew chapter 24... When we look at the first three verses in that passage, what Matthew does is describes a scene where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is leaving the temple area, and as he leaves, his disciples point out the magnificent buildings of the temple. And and he had just finished talking about this temple and how it's going to be destroyed. So during that period, the temple had undergone extensive uh, reconstruction work and the latest effort being paid for by Herod himself. In verse 1, Jesus responds to their comments by saying that the buildings will not only be empty, but they will also be torn down. And this sets up further questions by four particular apostles. We're talking about Peter, James, John, and Andrews, and we see this in Matthew chapter 13 at verse 13. They wanted more information about what he had just told them. So in their dialogue, the apostles question him about two things. Number one, when will the temple be destroyed? Number two, what signs will accompany the end of the world that will be brought on by the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Now, we don't know whether the apostles thought that these two events would happen at the same time. We don't know if they thought it would happen at different times, but we do know this. From their questions, they were asking about two different events. And again, that would be the destruction of the temple and the return of the Lord at the end of the world. 
Now, when we look at Matthew chapter 4, I mean, chapter 24, verses 4 through 14, we talked earlier how, how there was a section of Scripture there in, Thess- in Second Thessalonians as well as in, uh, in, 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 you know, as well as we were talking about this from Peter as well, that this can be very confusing. So since this can be very confusing, what we want to do is divide this up, if you will, into three views three views, if you will, of history that Jesus spoke of in answering their question. Oops. So the first view is referred to as the panoramic view. Um, in these verses, Jesus describes an overview or panoramic view of world history. That includes the time before the destruction of the temple, the time after the destruction of the temple, and a period at the end of time when Christ Jesus will return. The second view is referred to as the telescope to Jerusalem view. at verses 15 uh, through 35 of chapter 24 of Matthew. In these verses, Jesus kind of telescopes or focuses on one great event in the history of the Jews, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem which took place in 70 A.D., some 40 years uh, into the future. The next view, as we see at verses 36 through 44, this should be 36, not 16, but 36 through 44, Jesus finishes with a look to the far future when he will return, ushering in the end of days and the judgment. Now, if you keep these three views in mind, it will help us to untangle these complex verses. So let's go back to verses 4 through 15. Verse 4, okay? Now, here again, we're talking about the panoramic view. So this is a panoramic view until the second coming of Christ Jesus. So in verse 4, this instruction is given so that we will know and avoid false teachers and prophets in these matters. Verses 5 through 8, we see the cycle of false prophets, the wars and troubles in the world which continue until the end, but these in themselves do not signal the end. They are not signs of the end. They are only the beginning of things that will get progressively worse, but not only before rather not only the end of Jerusalem when it comes but also the end of the world when it comes verses 9 through 12 uh, if you remember when we were back in 2 Thessalonians verses 9 through 12 parallel 2 Thessalonians where Paul talks about the end of the world and what must take place first now remember what he said would take place first is the apostasy the falling away where the love for God, the love for Christ Jesus just basically grows cold within the hearts of individuals. He next said the man of lawlessness who deceives many through false signs and and tries to take the place of God, he will be revealed. Jesus described the the devolution of the world, uh, a cycle of evil and revival that continue to play out in human history until during a period of extreme evil the cycle is broken and it is broken by the appearance of Christ Jesus which signals the end of the world it signals the destruction of the world it signals the resurrection and it signals the judgment of all mankind with condemnation for some and glory for his disciples verse 13 
in contrast, we find that he promises this. He promises that the faithful will be saved despite all of these trials, despite all of this evil. In verse 14, he also promises that the great commission that we have read about will be carried out and must be carried out before the end can and will come. So this is a panoramic view of the events and flow of history that will occur until the second coming of Christ Jesus. Verses 15 through 35, again, the telescope to, uh, to the fall of Jerusalem. Now, Judea, as we know, was rebellious, and they longed to return to the glory days of independence and the power that they experienced that was experienced by the nation during the time of Solomon. Things were really good during that time. This caused such unrest that Rome sent in troops to quell, if you will, the rebellion. And in 66 through 70 AD, uh, the Roman armies successfully siege, set siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the city and the temple along with over one million people. This destruction of the Jewish nation and its principal city and, t- and temple was the fulfillment of Christ Jesus' prophecy to the disciples years earlier, which we just talked about. The disciples wanted to know when this would happen. And Jesus gives them the signs to watch out for because many of them would still be alive when this took place. So when we turn our attention to going back to verse 1 through 18, the first sign was the abomination of desolation. The point was that when the temple would be desecrated, this would be the sign that the destruction was near and they should escape the city. We read in Daniel at uh, chapters 11 and 12, uh, we, we see that Daniel prophesied that the temple would be defiled and that it was in the days of the Maccabees that the Syrian king uh, Antiochus Epiphanes who sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple. So Jesus picks up this idea and says that in the same way when the temple will be defiled by Gentiles during their lifetimes, it will be a signal to escape. And we're going to find out that one gentleman, he was a false prophet, but he did actually save a lot of lives because they did listen to him and they did follow him. So just turn our attention for a moment to Luke 21 at verse 20. Luke 21 verse 20. Now this text tells us that this text tells us that um, the surrounding of the temple by the foreign armies is what constituted defilement. The standards or the shields that the Roman soldiers used, um, they were idolatrous and they were often used in worship by the soldiers. So surrounding the temple with these implements or instruments desecrated it. Now, many scholars differ here in what the abomination was and refer to uh, Jewish historians uh, for events that occurred before, during, and after this. Excuse me. <coughs> Ooh, sorry. Ooh. Um, yeah, after the siege that could fit. But Luke, in chapter 21, verse 20, is the only biblical reference, if you will, that is suitable to this context. And we have these words here, he who reads. He who reads means he who reads Daniel, and along with Christ Jesus' um, cryptogram, will be able to know when it's, it's time to escape. So in 68 AD, 
uh, most Christians living in Jerusalem escaped to a city called Pella, a city located in northern, in modern day, I should say, Jordan, and thus avoided being killed in the massacre. Now, in, in 19 through 21, we're going to work our way up to 35. Um, the tribulation refers to the suffering caused by the Roman siege of the city. And again, over one million people were killed. The combination of the gravity of their sins, that is, Jews who received the blessings and promises but rejected it and killed the Messiah, along with the horror of the punishment, that is, the nation being wiped out, has not been equal since then. Verse 22, God's providence permitted the war to end so that the Christians would not all totally, completely be annihilated along with the Jews. Because you see, the Roman soldiers, it's fair to say that the Roman soldiers were not prejudiced. They didn't care if you were a Christian or not. They went in to kill. So they didn't care. So the believers uh, would naturally associate the destruction of Jerusalem with the return of Jesus. So Jesus warns them against being deceived by those who would claim to be the Lord or speak from God. Uh, most of us are familiar with the historian Josephus. Uh, he wrote a lot about the history of time, and he writes about this period where the rumors of the Messiah coming or being present circulated to keep the people in the city, not to get them out. They wanted them in the city. The Roman threat, however, caused hysteria and fear that in turn produced many prophets who claim uh, visions and messages from God. One such prophet said that he would miraculously separate the Sea of Galilee, and 25,000 people followed him out there to watch him do it. Jesus tells them that when he does return, not in 70 AD, but at the end of the world, it would be evident to all. Like lightning across the sky, everyone will easily and readily know that it is he. The corpse, in verse 28, the corpse is the Jewish nation. The vultures are the false Christ and false prophets. And we're told that when you see them in abundance, this will be the second sign that the end of Jerusalem is near, not the world, Jerusalem. Verse 29, the first word in this verse presents a problem to some, and that word is immediately. Now, when you hear the word immediately, you expect it to be like now. So if we make this next section discussion about the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus, then it must occur right after the destruction of Jerusalem. Some believe and teach this, and uh, and Jesus had, they were teaching that Jesus had already returned when he hasn't. Now, since the man of lawlessness has not been revealed, Jesus has not returned. Therefore, the passage must still be talking about the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and not the end of the world. Verses 30 through 31, uh, therefore, uh, speaks about the destruction and the effects that it will have on both believers and non-believers. The language is apocalyptic and it is used by prophets to describe cataclysmic historical and political events. Isaiah 13, for instance, describes the destruction of Babylon using similar language. Language used in the symbolism of the destruction of heavenly bodies is used to describe 
the very real fate of the world at the end, according to 1 Peter 3 at verse 10, but also the end and destruction of nations on the earth. In this case, in this case, the end of the Jewish nation as a people under God's special care. The coming of the Son of Man refers to both the second coming at the end of the world as well as judgment, uh, any judgment, that God makes on a particular nation throughout history. In this case, the nation of Israel in 70 A.D. It also fits the context of the passage the Jews who rejected him now see him coming as a form of judgment on their nation. A terrible catastrophe that would horrify the world but liberate Christians and the gospel from Jewish persecution. Note that the Greek word translated angel can also be translated messenger here. So this verse can be seen as prophecy concerning the spreading of the gospel throughout the world after the fall of Jerusalem. And verse 24 said this needed to be done before Christ's return. It needed to be done. And now with the ideological and cultural restraints of Judaism removed, Christianity would flourish even more. That was the thought. So Jesus warns them to pay attention to the signs that he has given them because these things will happen in their generation. And he promised by his word that they will happen. So next we turn our attention from the telescopic view to the second coming. Now Jesus just explains the signs that will uh, preview the destruction of Jerusalem. What did he say? Preaching of the gospel to all the nations. Romans 10 and verse 18. Multiplication of false Christ. Uh, historian Josephus. Abomination of the temple. Luke 2 at verse 20. Great tribulation. Again, we can go back to the historian Josephus. In verses 36 through 44, he makes a contrast of this event with uh, the second coming at the end of the world. In verse 36. He lets, us, he lets them know and lets us know. No one knows the time, not even Jesus while he was signs, and all will seem normal. What is normal? What is normal? Normal in the sense that the believers will be preparing themselves for the second coming and the end of the world, and the rest of the world will be ignoring it until it would be too late, just like in the time of Noah. Oops, too soon. Now, some take this verse to mean that before Jesus' return, some will be taken in a rapture, if you will, and disappear to be with God in heaven. When we think of this, this is where we come up with the, uh, the premillennialist view of the rapture and a thousand-year reign. But in contrast, Jesus is talking about readiness. He says that when he returns suddenly, one will be saved and one will be lost. No time for repentance, no time for change. Let's think back to the days of Noah. Think back to the days of Noah. The rain came. They had been taken into the ark. The ark had been sealed. They had disappeared into the ark. The others remained outside doing what it is they were doing. And as a result, they died in the flood. When Jesus comes, the faithful will be taken to be with him. And the disbelievers will immediately be put away from his presence. Since the end is to be like this, we should always be prepared and not foolishly lapse into sin thinking that 
we have plenty of time to repent. Christians need to be ready for his return because no one knows when it will be. So I want to share an exhortation with you. First, an exhortation to vigilance. After responding to the question of judgment on Jerusalem and his return, Jesus warns his disciples to be vigilant, and he does so using three parables. The first is the parable of the evil slave. Um, Here the lesson is not to presume that we have the luxury of sinning because the end is is far away. It can come at any time, and the judgment, judgment is sure for those who are unfaithful. And then there's the parable of the ten virgins chapter 25 uh, verses 1 through 13 here Jesus warns against the foolishness of not being ready in this parable it is not a question of gross evil but rather of negligence to neglect Christ Jesus would bring destruction in the end as well and the third parable is the parable of the talents verses 14 through 30 here the warning is for those who are in the kingdom of God that is the church but who failed to expand its borders and failed to serve the king with zeal. This slave was not caught or surprised unprepared. He just assumed that his preparation was sufficient when it wasn't. So all three parables have the element of preparation, the element of judgment, and the element of punishment for those who neglect to prepare for the return of the master. So in chapter 25, verses 31 through Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 36, we see the judgment scene. The climax of the discourse is the judgment scene at the end of the world. Those found to be righteous have obeyed the commands to love God, refer to him as Lord, as well as their neighbor. This was the way to prepare. Those condemned have the same judgment and are condemned because they did not love their neighbor. The punishment and reward are eternal in nature. The overarching theme is this. Be ready. Be ready. So in these two letters, in these two letters, we're not really closing now, so don't get too happy yet. (laughs) In these two letters, Paul has given thanks for their faithfulness, defended his own conduct, instructed them concerning the return of Jesus and that he said before Jesus returned that would be the apostasy the man of lawlessness will be revealed he said when Jesus returns believers will be caught up wicked will be punished he has also encouraged them to remain steadfast continue believing the truth and follow the path of truth to avoid the destruction awaiting those who follow the path of lies and deception After these instructions, Paul leaves them with two final exhortations. With two final exhortations uh, in this letter. Exhortation number one, he says, pray. We see this in 2 Thessalonians. We're over there now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul has begun his letter. If you remember at the very beginning, he began his letter by praying for them. Now he closes the letter by asking them to pray for him. He guides them in the things to pray for. Verse 1, that the gospel will grow and spread as it did with them. The church, rather church growth begins with prayer. In the first century, 
and in our current century. Verse 2, that Paul would be delivered from those who oppose the gospel because of their lack of faith. The world opposes the church in the first century as well as now. Verse 3, he reassures them concerning the things that he has spoken. He assures them that it will happen and don't doubt it. Paul knew that the gospel is God's powerful tool to save man, but it is prayer that keeps the gospel in motion. It keeps the gospel, it helps it be spread. So you can't save people, however, just by praying for them. Somewhere along the way, you have to preach the gospel to them. Pray for them, pray with them, and preach the gospel to them. They have to know the terms of their salvation. They have to be confronted with the painful truth that unless they obey the gospel, unless they follow Christ, they are lost. They have to, we rather have to risk telling them these things and take the chance that they will be upset, take the chance that they will reject us, take the chance that they, they will even humiliate us, especially close friends. There is no salvation without the gospel. And there is no gospel being sent out without prayer. Jesus prays that God will send workers. We see this in Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. In verses 4 and 5, in the last verses of this section, Paul reminds them that God will answer their prayers. And in answer to their prayers, God will not. I mean, rather, God will not only guard Paul, but will also guard them and help them grow in love and perseverance these then are the type of things we should also be praying for ourselves for one another and with one another exhortation number two stay busy and doing good verse six Paul describes the problem that they are having and how to handle it they should remain aloft, which means they should uh, mark off a boundary from those who are living disorderly lives, not according to what they had been taught. What they, now, what have they been taught? They have been taught faithfulness and good work. They have been taught prayer and purity. They have been taught not to unnecessarily be a burden to others. We must remember that in the first letter, Paul had admonished those who were not working to get busy and quietly support themselves. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11. Perhaps some at that time still believed that the end was at hand and did not obey this admonition. But Paul, in the name of Christ, commands the church to take action. In this section, he describes five things. It says that they should be doing, but really... We are here today, five things that we should be doing. Number one, remain aloft, stay away, verse 6, chapter 3. We've already mentioned this one. They are to note and withdraw from lazy, undisciplined, unrepentant Christians so that their behavior is made public and dealt with. This is not easy to do, but very effective when done in a proper and loving way. Number two, Follow the examples of the apostles, verses 7 through 9. The apostles are the living example that Christ Jesus left for us to follow. We copy Christ when we copy the examples of their lives and their faith. Number three, remember and obey the teaching. 
verses 10 through 12. The apostles taught that right living in the Lord. They taught this and said, remember this teaching and teach it to the ones who need to obey it on all matters. Number four, don't be discouraged. Verses, verse 13, don't be tired of doing good. Don't get tired of working hard. Don't get tired of encouraging those who are not doing good and working hard. He says, God will reward you. This is his promise. So he says, don't quit. Number five, he says, discipline those who refuse to repent. Verses 14 and 15. They had to continue to warn. They had to continue to teach disobedience, to teach the disobedience and unrepentant one while remaining separated themselves, which tells us something. When we're dealing with individuals who are disobedient, we, we are separate but with them because in the sense that we're still trying to teach them and bring them back. They had to do this unpleasant task and still remember that he was a brother, he, she was a sister, and needs to be disciplined in love. That's what we got to remember. One of the reasons there's often division and trouble in the church really is the reluctance to correctly discipline those members who are not following the teaching of Christ. These became like a cancer to the body, robbing it of strength, robbing it of health. Obviously, in this short list of types of things Christian ought to be doing, but the Thessalonians Christians had to focus on these areas in order to remain viable as a church, and so must we. Now we get into the closing. So Paul has thanked, Paul has taught, Paul has exhorted, and now he closes this letter with a variety of thoughts to the Thessalonians, thoughts that they needed to ponder, thoughts that we need to ponder. Verse 16, he reminds them, God is with them. No. God is with us in every situation. His presence is what brings us to the peace that we feel and want to remain in. Verse 17. This letter is genuine. They may have received fake reports in the past which led to confusion and disturbed their sense of peace, but this letter is true. They can therefore we can therefore follow his instructions with confidence. He probably had someone write this letter for him as he dictated it to them and then signed it with his own hand as we saw in verse 2 at verse 2. Some think that his eyesight was a thorn in his flesh that necessitated this and produced the unusual signature he talks about. Verse 18, he offers a final blessing to us, the church. If we have the Lord's favor upon us, there is nothing that can harm us. Our blessings and our future are secure. I thank you for joining me during this series. Thank you for the comments that have been made throughout this series. But I pray that we all take these things to heart that we find here in these short books in First and Second Thessalonians. And in closing uh, this lesson, I take you to 3 John 2. It is a prayer. It wouldn't hurt if we said it each and every day 
for each and every one of us. And it is this. Beloved, I pray that you prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Thank you.